Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, we read, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. In the final chapter of Mark, Jesus rises from the grave, appears to many witnesses, commands the disciples to preach the good news to every creature, and then he ascends into heaven. Last week, we took a brief look at the merits of including or excluding verses 9 through 20. Now we are going to look at the implications of a risen and ascended Savior. We learn in the New Testament that 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says that Jesus appeared to witnesses to whom also he presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible, we might translate that unmistakable proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That, by the way, is the only reference in the New Testament that gives us the length of time between the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his subsequent ascension into heaven. In obedience to Christ's commands, a few committed disciples are given the task of world evangelism. William MacDonald writes, quote, as the population explodes, the task increases, but the method is always the same. Devoted disciples with unlimited love for Jesus who count no sacrifice too great for him. And so we begin with the servant's coronation, crown him with many crowns. In Mark 16, 19, it says, so then after the Lord had spoken to them about the things of the kingdom, he was received up into heaven. He didn't have to storm the gates. He didn't have to take over. He didn't have to seize control. He is loved and accepted and sat down at the right hand of God. So the ascension of Jesus isn't simply, oh, P.S., he went to heaven. Remember, much of Mark's gospel is devoted to his life. A third of the gospel is devoted to the events surrounding his death and his resurrection. And sometimes some people see this as a kind of afterthought or theological afterthought. But it's not true. You see, the ascension of Jesus is recorded here in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51, and Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. If you go all the way back to to the book of Acts in chapter one, verses one and two, Luke, who was the companion of Paul, who wrote Luke's gospel, who then subsequently wrote the book of Acts, writes, quote, in the first book, that's Luke. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. The ascension of Jesus gives us this important statement. 
The ministry of Jesus doesn't end with his death or even with his resurrection. It continues. Did Jesus literally ascend into heaven? Well, remember what we've already learned. Was Jesus literally born of a virgin in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophecies? The answer is yes. A literal birth, a literal life, a literal death, a literal resurrection. It makes perfect sense that he would also ascend in the body that was resurrected. As a matter of fact, it says in Luke or in in, um, Acts, it says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up in Acts chapter one, verse nine. It says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched physically, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Remember, an angel stood by and said, men of Galilee, why do you sit? Looking up into heaven, this same Jesus who you saw ascend will in like manner come back. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter one uses four Greek words to describe the ascension. He was taken up in verse nine. A cloud received him out of their sight. Verse nine. He went up. Verse 10. He is taken up. To heaven. Verse 11. So I think these four statements are significant because of what the angel predicts, that his second coming will be exactly the same way. Literal, physical, visible, in the clouds. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says, You made him, that's Jesus, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and Honor. The return of Jesus to heaven was marked by glory, triumph, honor, because the Lord really is the king of heaven. Remember, before Jesus died, he told his disciples in John 14, in the famous passage that's preached at almost every single funeral, when he was trying to explain to his to his disciples the reality that he was leaving. He said, look, I am going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. The emphasis isn't on the place, but on the person. You know, one of the privileges of going to Israel repeatedly You meet people, you form friendships, you get to meet people and they're there. We'll go to Tel Aviv and we'll be greeted at the airport. We will drive to Joppa and we will have contacts there. We will have people that we know and who know us. Isn't it fun when you go to a new place that there's somebody there who knows you and loves you and can show you around? That's exactly what it's going to be like in heaven. And the truth is, if you, like me, are going to be able to turn shocking white hair and, look, wrinkles, I've got good news and bad news. Bad news, you're going to get wrinkles if you continue to live. Good news, they don't hurt. They feel just fine. I kind of like the way they feel. If you manage to live long enough, There may come a day when you wake up one morning 
And you know more people in heaven than you do on the earth. So to sit at the right hand of God meant something. The ascension of Jesus marked the completion of his earthly ministry and the beginning of his new ministry as high priest and advocate of the people. The writer of Hebrews devotes chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 to this very issue. To sit at the right hand of, the God, of God, like I said, is the place of honor, dignity, authority. And Jesus is seen, seated at the right hand of the Father in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Psalm 110, verse 1, in Matthew chapter 22 verse 44 in Luke chapter 20 verse 43 in Romans chapter 8 verse 34 so the Bible teaches the fact of Jesus's ascension the evidence of his arrival in heaven the meaning and the significance of that event so what can we know what can we as Christians know based on the ascension of our Savior well one of the things we learn from his death and his resurrection is that God is real. This is reinforced by his resurrection. How else can you explain Jesus literally being taken up into heaven and received in heaven? So we learn something. There is a God. We learn something else. Jesus is, in fact, God's son. We learn something else, that Jesus' message is real. How else can we explain the Father receiving him? And we also learn that heaven is a real place. It's not just a fiction. It's not just a theological construct. It is not just wishful thinking on the part of religious people. But it also means that the gospel is true. That the message of hope is true. That life and love and forgiveness, regeneration, redemption, reconciliation, it's true. And the Great Commission is the call and mission of believers. So let's connect the dots. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's gone. He's no longer here, at least in the way that he used to be, physically, bodily. If the gospel is to be carried to every living creature, remember that's what we learn in verse 15. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Then we understand something. Believers are called to do that work. Jesus is the one who gave the Great Commission. As a matter of fact, you might want to turn over to Matthew chapter 28. I want to just visit this just for a moment. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, in a fuller outline, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the ethnos, people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus not only invites us to fulfill the Great Commission, what if I suggested to you that these are our marching orders? This is the divine directive. So the ascension assures us that the power and the resources will be made available to do just that. Remember, Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this, 
that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, Peter, Peter said. The Old Testament prophet Joel said, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. And the promise is fulfilled by an exalted Jesus. We have a special helper in heaven who genuinely loves us. Who completely cares for us. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 15 says that Jesus is the one touched by the feelings of our infirmities. One who was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. He knows you. He knows everything about you. And so the Bible teaches Jesus is the last Adam and the head of the new creation. He is the head of the body. He is the great shepherd of his sheep. He is the true vine in relationship to the branches. He is the chief cornerstone in relationship to the church. He is pictured as the high priest of a royal priesthood. He is pictured as the bridegroom of the bride. And all of these figures are full of meaning in relation to his present work in heaven In the throne room of God. Many people go. I know about the life of Jesus. And I know about the death of Jesus. And I know about the resurrection of Jesus. But has anyone ever said to you. I wonder what he's doing right now. I wonder what Jesus is up to. You know I had a pretty impressive ministry back in the day. But what are you doing now? And you'll go around the room. I think he's watching the Rockies lose so many in a row. As if. Jesus' primary preoccupation is the one loss record of the local team. Don't get me wrong. Jesus really does watch all of the games. There's a real advantage to having infinite knowledge. That means you know everything about everything. But the writer of Hebrews In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, paints a picture of Jesus as high priest in a true tabernacle on high where Jesus ministers. And I want you to think about this on behalf of those who belong to him on the earth. And so his preoccupation isn't with who's winning March Madness or the game. His preoccupation is with you and you and you and you. He's thinking about you. He lives and intercedes for you. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because at the beginning of chapter 8 of Hebrews... It says in verse one, now this is the, the main point of the things we're saying. That's chapter seven. We have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. The writer gives us a picture of a place in heaven where Jesus has built a majestic temple. Not made by humanity. That means it can never be broken. It it can never be done away with except for the person who made it. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Jesus is our high priest. And because he's our, our high priest, he's superior to Aaron. Here is the point. In the Old Testament, the descendants of Levi ministered in the temple. But theirs was an imperfect and an incomplete priesthood. How do we know? Because they die. Right, right. Blame it on the Jew. 
Look, you're getting it wrong. You're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm not blaming it on the Jew. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing because the Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Clearly, human beings are appointed to live and to die. And But the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is our priest never dies. He ever lives. And so the fact that Jesus was received into heaven means that he is a superior priest. He's received by the Father, which means his work is accepted and completed. He calls both Jew and Gentile into one new body. And because he's the high priest, he is the one who bestows the spiritual gifts through the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, a gift is a divine power or enablement manifested in and through the believer by the Holy Spirit. The ascended Jesus as priest advocates intercedes, gifts, appears before his own in the presence of the Father. In that sense, Jesus continues his work of advocating for us. Because the truth is, when we think about the heavenly ministries of Jesus, one is to enable his people to do his will. And what is his will? It's to believe the message. It's to receive hope. And then it's to communicate that message and perpetuate that message. There's lots that are associated with the will of Jesus. But in this context, remember, I think it refers back to what we've been studying in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be Condemned, Jesus will bestow gifts by the Holy Spirit. These are the gifts that are mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. But each believer is given a gift, but the blessing and the power will be experienced in direct proportion to the believer's willingness to yield to God in accordance with the plans. There's little need for exhortation to the one who lives a life of submission And cooperation in the Holy Spirit. So what is he talking about? He's talking about a willingness to do the work. What what does the ascended Lord do? He serves as a high priest. He secures and bestows spiritual gifts. He intercedes as the priest. In John 17, 9, remember in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. The work of intercession is related to something that you should think about right at this very moment. His work of intercession is related to my weakness and your weakness, my helplessness and your helplessness, my immaturity and your immaturity. Does it shock you or surprise you that Jesus knows everything about you? By the way, does that include your limitations? Does that include faults? Does that include foibles? Jesus knows that we have clever enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. 
The Bible says that the Father has overcome the world. The Bible says that the Son has defeated the devil. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has been placed in the life of the believer so that we can grow. Every enemy has a champion. And so, the priestly ministry of Jesus in heaven is not only effectual, but unending. The Jewish priests failed because they died. The Lord lives. Now, again, I want you to think about the ministry of Jesus in heaven. He appears for his own in the presence of the Father. The Apostle John addressed the issue of sin in the life of the believer. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does all of this mean? It is, what is the effect of sin on the Christian? It robs us of peace. It robs us of joy. It robs us of fellowship with one another and with the Lord. And guess what? We experience restoration on the basis of confession. We confess because we begin to understand, accept and embrace the holy character of God. Remember what an advocate is. An advocate is one who pleads the case of another. In the ancient society of law, you would plead the case and sometimes there would be an open court. And Jesus appears in heaven for his own in Hebrews 9.24. When we sin in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, the pleading is said to be with the Father against Satan, who according to Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, accuses the brethren day and night. So why is this important for each and every one of you? Because sometimes we lose sight, not only of our Savior because he's ascended, but we lose sight of how difficult, of how wicked, of how consequential, of how significant sin really is. You see, if you come to the place in your life where you think that it seems minor, inconsequential, insignificant, you come to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he ascended into heaven and it's no big deal. It's not that big of a deal. But the holy God of heaven never treats sin lightly. You see, what we've done here on the earth may not be known to our husband, our wife, our brother, our sister, our family, our friends, our children. But it is an open scandal in heaven. Do you realize you're in trouble if ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, and Fox all report something that you've done? You go, oh no. The whole world knows what I've done. It's common knowledge. I remember hearing a former famous president go, wow, I had no idea that so many people would be so upset. (laughs) But has it ever stopped? Have you ever stopped to think about this? That what you do and what you think is private 
becomes open knowledge in heaven. And you never, ever understand the significance of that until you bow your head and you pray the prayer. Jesus, will you please explain this to the Father for me? And then all of a sudden you begin to understand something. The value, the power, the passion that's available in heaven. And yeah, that's just verse 19. I guess we need to go to the next one. Look what it says in verse 20. The disciples' compliance. They went out and they preached everywhere. The disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven. But their attention is soon turned and has its focus on the preaching of the gospel. And remember what preach means. Caruzzo. It means to persuade. It means to speak using persuasion. It isn't just simply telling someone something, but rather it's persuading them of the facts, of the content of the message. And that's why when people say, don't preach to me, I go, oh, I'm a preacher. Wow, you have me over a barrel. Baseball players play baseball. Basketball players play basketball. Preachers preach. But let me help you understand what a preacher is. It's a person who's urging you to believe and embrace a message of hope. Urging you to believe that your sins can be forgiven. Urging you to believe that Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. Urging you to believe that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are regenerate and you are redeemed and you are reconciled back to God. So when he says they went out and they preached everywhere. Remember what Jesus had said in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Usually when we hear the, the, the emphasis of go, we think, where? But I want to encourage you that this is a divine directive that isn't saying go to Africa, go to Asia, go to South America. It's more the idea of as you go about your business. Jesus is at work calling people to form a body, indwelling them, empowering them, sanctifying them to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. For what purpose? Because Jesus wants to bring a group of people to be his constant companions throughout eternity. So we might think about this as a directive. Go. We might think of the mission preach the gospel. But C.S. Lewis said, Jesus Christ didn't say, go into the world and tell the world, well, everything is quite right. Lewis was right. Our message isn't you're okay and, and life should go on the way it has always gone on. The message is things aren't okay. But you have a message of hope. William Bramwell sensed the urgency and wrote, how is it that the soul being of such value and God so great and eternity so near and yet we are so little moved because probably the issue of go isn't so much answered by where but by who go to who to my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my family, my friend, my neighbor. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, had as his motto, 
Go into the world. He said, go for souls. Go for souls. Go for the worst. And so they took the drunks and the prostitutes. The aft scouring and scum. He said, let's go for the worst. And I'm glad that he did. Because there were people who embraced his motto. Let's talk to people who aren't living in a world of self-delusion that everything is right in their life. Go to the people who actually understand there's something wrong with me. There's something empty with me. There's something broken with me. There's something that needs to be fixed. When I was growing up, that's who I was. I was the person that your parents warned you about. Don't hang out with him. That's trouble. If you go to that side of the tracks and you're with that guy, things aren't going to go well. There's a reason why I was voted most likely to go to hell. It's because there were no boundaries. There was no wicked thing that I was unwilling to do if I thought I could get away with it. The poet John Donne cried, Christ beats his drum, but he does not press men. Christ is served with volunteers. Jesus isn't going to strong arm you. He isn't going to take you by the wrist and break your arm and break your leg or break your neck in order to get you to comply. Jesus lovingly, gently, firmly, persistently warms and welcomes and points in a direction of love and service. And look what it says at the end of the text. And they went out and they preached everywhere. It began in Jerusalem. It continued in Judea. It spread to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. I read an interesting statistic. One half of all the people who have ever lived since the beginning of time are alive right at this very moment. According to the Bureau of Statistics, the world's population has risen from 2 billion to 7 billion in the last 85 years. As the population explodes, so does the need to preach the gospel to every creature. Many years ago, a missionary went to a primitive pagan society and she became burdened for a young wife. And she eventually led this woman to the Lord, gave her the gospel, shared Christ with her. The story of hope and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. And you would think that after she was saved, she would express joy and freedom. But tears began to fill her eyes and she was gripped by grief and sorrow. And she said, I wish you could have come sooner so my little boy could have been saved and when the missionary asked why it was too late the mother replied because just a few weeks before you came to us I offered him as a sacrifice to the gods of our tribe and we might sigh and we might gasp When we forget that we live in a culture and society since 1973 that has plunged some 70 million souls into eternity 
because of abortion, partial birth abortion, because people wickedly and for convenience sake decided that they were going to terminate a life. They never, it never occurred to them that there was hope, that there was grace, that there was mercy, that there was an opportunity. We all have eternity to speak of victories for Christ. But we only have moments left. Jesus said, the night is coming. But there will come a time when darkness will fall. And so we must work while it's still light. Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus said, and I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When he said those words to Peter, remember it was out of response to his statement when he asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Jesus and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The world's a very big place. So when it says go, for some of you, you don't have to go very far. All you have to do is go home. And talk to your wife and talk to your husband, talk to your children, talk to your neighbor, talk to your family, talk to your friends. We have lots of options. According to the United Nations, there are 223 political countries. That's because they didn't count Boulder as a separate state. But I think they kind of could have. You go to Boulder and it's 15 miles surrounded by reality. Within the world, according to some estimates, there are 16,750 people groups still unreached with a permanent witness of the gospel or a permanent church or a permanent testimony. A group exists within countries and are set apart by a common language, common religion, common ethnicity, common residence, common occupations or class or caste systems. And so we can begin in our own world our neighbors, our friends, there are three million Silha in Morocco who are Muslims and animists. There are 46,000 Kerry in Central Africa. There are 10,000 Cairo tomb dwellers. There are five million Yemenis in North Yemen. There are 20 million Sudanese who have fled the Sudan. There are 10,000 Cairo dump dwellers. The list could go on and on. There are one billion Hindus. There's another billion Muslims. I want you to think about it. Four out of every five people who will die today will go to hell. Because broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many are they who travel on that road. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Hudson Taylor wrote, we are asked to do an impossible task. But we work with him who can do the impossible. We can actually, in obedience, do exactly what Jesus asked us to do.
And by the way, that's where it begins with obedience. It says the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The disciples witnessed the resurrection. They witnessed the ascension of Jesus into heaven. But I want you to think about what you just read at the end of verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. He wasn't a disinterested observer in heaven, but Jesus himself was working with them, confirming the word through accompanying signs so that when they gave the message of hope, all of the signs that we've talked about in in Mark's gospel, it accompanied those. But guess what? The same signs will follow you in this sense. If you preach the gospel, will dark people be given light? The answer is yes. Will dead people be given life? The answer is yes. Will they be changed? You know what? Is your life any indication of the truth of the gospel that you believe? Some in the church seek signs and wonders, but they've neglected the preaching of the gospel. In the New Testament, the only place where Jesus talks about signs and wonders is in in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 48, where he says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. This isn't a command to seek signs and wonders. It's a command to believe. Signs and wonders don't produce faith and they don't produce confidence in God. Otherwise, the generation to which Jesus appeared would have the most faith and the most confidence of any generation that has ever lived. But the religious leaders didn't believe Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus said, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And we know what that sign is. Jesus will rise from the dead. But I want you to think about the sign of the prophet Jonah. Do you remember Jonah? He was asked by God. I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to tell them that we're 40 days away from judgment. And he goes, I hate Ninevites. They murdered my family and all of my friends. Do you understand who the Ninevites really are? These are the people, Lord, who find Jews, chop off their head, leech the skin off of them, build piles of skulls. Uh, The truth is these people aren't good people. These are wicked people, evil people, horrible people. And so I'm going to do something else. He gets in a boat and he heads not for Nineveh, but to Tarshish. Near modern Spain in the rock of Gibraltar. He's headed in the Mediterranean on a boat running from God. And you'll remember a storm comes up, threatens to destroy the ship. The captain goes below, says, who are you? He goes, I'm a Hebrew prophet. Right. Why is all this happening? Because, well, I'm a Hebrew prophet. I've been assigned by God for a specific mission. I don't want to do it. And so we're all in danger. The captain says, well, what should we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. (laughs) But I want you to think about what he just said. Do you understand what he's just said? Kill me. When he was thrown overboard, it wasn't the expectation that he would live, but that they would live. It wasn't the expectation that he would be swallowed by a sea creature. It was the expectation that he would die because there are some people who would rather be dead. Then obey Jesus. 
they would rather literally, not metaphorically, they would literally rather be dead. And so he's swallowed by a sea creature. And he remains within the bowels of this sea creature for three days and three nights as the sea creature swims towards the target of Nineveh and barfs him up on the shore, bleached white, shocked hair, shocked eyes. But remember what happens inside that sea creature. Jonah goes, okay, I think I'm ready to do pretty much whatever it is you want me to do. But he still is reluctant. And he preaches a message. And hundreds of thousands of people believe the message. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. Jesus worked on the earth. Now he continues to work in heaven. When the disciples preached, they understood That Jesus was not only advocating for them in heaven, but he was in the audience wherever they went. So how can the church fulfill Christ's command? In a word, it's obedience. Obedience is the one qualification for further vision. Lord, I want you to tell me what to do. Okay, I'm going to tell you what to do. Tell me the other thing. I can't tell you the other thing until you're willing to do the first thing. And by the way, this becomes an important principle for everyone who knows him and loves him. I want to know what you want from me. Before you ask that question, you need to be able to ask the question. I've done exactly what you've asked from me. Do you lack confidence or vision for what God wants you to do? Then take the step of obedience. Go and proclaim the gospel. G. Campbell Morgan was preaching from the text, Lo, I'm with you always. He called it a promise. And this very smart lady came up to one of the great preachers of all time and said, That's not a promise. It's a fact. Promises are different from facts. Facts are things that are real, current, established, testable. David Livingston was in great danger in Africa, and by flickering candlelight, he read those words, Lo, I'm with you always, and he said, That settles it. These are the words of a gentleman of sacred honor. I will trust him. I will not be afraid. And God brought Livingston through his troubles and trials. And in England, years later, he said, The thing that sustained me all of those years in Africa were the words, Lo, I am with you. And when you are in difficulty, in darkness, not clear about the message or the guidance, then you need to embrace the promise. When Jesus spoke the words of the Great Commission, it seemed impossible. Within a generation, the gospel had gone to Judea, Samaria, Rome, Spain, India, Africa. Billy Graham said, We're the Bibles the world is reading. We're the creeds the world is needing. We're the sermons the world is heeding. And guess what? When you spread the gospel, you spread salvation. Because think about it. I want you to think about this carefully. 
God is in the business of saving people. And his chosen method is using people. All kinds of people. People exactly like you. This week I read a story in a Christian magazine about a medical doctor named Chris Edwardson. He wrote in this magazine, One day a judge came into my office. I asked him what he was really in for because his leg cast didn't need to be checked. He said, I just thought maybe you could give me a reason to live. And he broke down. And he began to sob. And the doctor said, I shared Christ with him. I asked him if he was a sinner. I asked him if he needed forgiveness. I asked him what prevented him from accepting the Lord and receiving him into his heart. He said, I asked him what prompted him to tell me that. And he said, when you walked into the room, I saw something in your eyes that told me that you had what I wanted. Something told me you knew the answer to life. I look in men's faces all day long. And when I look into their faces, I am judging them for the truth. I could see that in your face you believed with all your heart that what you were telling me was true. It was enough to convince me that this is what I needed. When people look in your life, when they look at your face, when they look in your eyes, what exactly do they see? In brief, what does the ascension mean? It means that the work of Jesus continues. What else does it mean? That the Holy Spirit is sent for power and provision. What else does it mean? That our Savior is enthroned in heaven. What else does it mean? The Father and the Son have experienced a sweet reunion. What else does it mean? That Jesus is our mediator and high priest. What else does it mean? That he will return both as judge and king of the universe. Doug Groteis yesterday, when he was sharing with us some important truths, he said something that caught my attention. He said, we can take the whole Bible to the whole world. And I thought, I like that. We can take the whole Bible. To the whole world. In order for the whole world. To be made whole. Jesus will return. The ascended Jesus will abolish injustice. He will make every right wrong. Every wrong right. He will end suffering. He will destroy death. He will establish truth and righteousness and love. And guess what? If that's all that happened, that would be wonderful. But I've left out the most important thing that he will do. He will be your constant companion throughout all of eternity. You, you, you will be with him and he will be 
with you. What could be greater than that? We will be with our king forever and ever. And everyone said, Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Our Lord, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we have someone who loves us, cares for us, pleads for us, advocates for us. Not just when we get there, but when we need him most, right here, right now. In order to do what needs to be done, Lord, we want to be men and women who with our faces, with our hands, with our feet, with our hearts, and with our words, will go to our family and friends, neighbors and colleagues. And for some of us, beyond the borders of this state and this country. Lord, we pray that you would fulfill your plan and your purpose in the world, but that you would do it by fulfilling your plan and purpose in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.